you turn your Bibles with me to Proverbs chapter 2. Proverbs chapter 2, and let's begin by reading, starting in verse 1. My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek for her as silver and search for her as hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice, and he preserves the way of his godly ones. Then you will discern righteousness and justice and equity and every good course. For wisdom will enter your heart, and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will guard you. Understanding will watch over you. To deliver you from the way of evil, from the man who speaks perverse things, from those who leave the paths of uprightness, to walk in the way of darkness, who delight in doing evil and rejoice in the perversity of evil, whose paths are crooked, and who are devious in their ways. To deliver you from the strange woman, from the adulteress who flatters with her words, that leaves the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death, and her tracks lead to the dead. None who go to her return again, nor do they reach the paths of life. So you will walk in the way of good men and keep the, to the paths of the righteous. For the upright will live in the land, and the blameless will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land, and the treacherous, treacherous will be uprooted from it. This is the word of the Lord to us. This is his wisdom for us. We began last week considering the first nine verses of this chapter to uh, see the pursuit of wisdom and how it really does take effort. We don't trip into wisdom. We don't fall or slide into wisdom. It takes effort to go get it. And maybe you even have a heading in your chapter that the pursuit of wisdom brings security. That's the heading in my Bible. And those first eight or nine verses deal with that pursuit. It has to be all out. You have to want it enough to get it. But then in the second half of the verse, uh, second half of the chapter, you see how it comes to bring you security, how it comes to protect you. The title tonight is The Safety of Possessing Wisdom. The Safety of Possessing Wisdom. You look in verse 9, what happens? Well, look first in verse 5. If you, if you go after wisdom, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. It brings you into relationship with God. But then there's another result. There's another product of getting wisdom and coming to fear God. Verse 9, then you will discern righteousness and justice and, ev and equity in every good course. 
And in verse 10, I believe he's describing how that comes about and what safety you have. But then you may have noticed in verses 12 and 16, there are two additional results that come from this, two protections, two particular ways that wisdom guides you in the way of righteousness rather than the way of sin. And that is protection, isn't it? To be protected from sin. Father, who art in heaven, deliver us from evil. We need delivered from this, don't we? That's what Jesus taught his disciples to pray. But you see in verse 12, to deliver you from the way of evil, from the man who per speaks perverse things. It's not just a, a way of life, but it's also a companionship in that way of life. Look at verse 16. To deliver you, you could say, also from the strange woman, from the adulteress who flatters with her words. I want you to notice something else about this second half of this chapter. I want you to notice Solomon's focus on path and road and way. Uh, look at verse uh, 12. To deliver you from the way of evil. Verse 13. From those who leave the paths of uprightness. To walk in the ways of darkness. Verse 15. Whose paths are crooked. Who are devious in their ways. And you get this sense of motion and uh, relocation when he's talking about the strange woman. But look at verse 20. Uh, verse 19, they do not reach the paths of life. Verse 20, you will walk in the ways of good men. Keep to the paths of the righteous. Solomon really is talking about a way of life. He's talking about the route that you take. And he's kind of making this implicit connection between the people that are on those paths and the path itself. And he's making a connection between the path that they're on and the results of their path. Do you see that? The reason you avoid the path that these people are on is because the path is inseparable from the consequences. Have you heard somebody say you can choose your actions, but you can't choose your consequences? When you, maybe another way, when you choose the beginning of a path, you're also at the same time, whether you know it or not, you're choosing the end of the path. Where does the path end? When you go on a hike, maybe you can stop at the little hut that Summit County Parks has for you, and you can look at where that path is going to take you. And it's like, okay, yes, I want to go on this path, not this path. This is the easy one. This is the hard one. I'm not ready for that. Are you ready to embrace the consequences of the path that you choose? That's what Solomon is teaching his son to do. And what did Jesus say? Broad is the gate and easy is the way that leads to destruction. There's, I heard somebody describe it, there's plenty of space for carry-ons. Bring all the luggage you want. You're not going to get jostled in line here. There's plenty of space. You don't have to compete for a spot on this road. It's comfortable at the beginning, right? But once you step on that path, what's the end of the path? But he also said, but the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and few find it. When you look at the, the path of fear in God, it seems claustrophobic. It seems hard. It seems to be too much. It's certainly not popular. It's not easy. But the end of that path is far greater and far more blessed than the way to destruction, isn't it? Wise people have God's blessing because they walk in his righteous ways. That's what Solomon is teaching. 
The security of wisdom is that it leads you in paths of righteousness. How blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Why is he blessed? Well, he, he suffers none of the consequences of that ungodliness. He, he receives all of the blessings of his righteousness that God is leading in it. Wise people have God's blessings because they walk in his righteousness. So labor for wisdom. Search for it. Ask for it. Go find it. And then you will actually find the very source of it. You'll find God himself. He gives wisdom. That's what Solomon says in verse 6. And then he comes to the protections for wisdom. What's, what's the big deal of avoiding the path of the people that he's talking about? Well, he is making, like I said, this, this connection between a path and its consequences. And if you avoid these paths, then what happens? Verse 20, you will walk in a different path. You will walk in the way of good men and keep to the paths of the righteous righteousness, as God defines it, is wisdom. This is a moral category. This is skill in God's world, is righteousness, as God outlines it, as God reveals himself to be. Righteous living is wise living. So notice first the, the products of fearing God. He says in verse 9, then if you're receiving wisdom for the Lord, if you're coming to fear the Lord, then what happens? I think you could describe what happens in two, two ways. You have a, a, a moral sense, moral common sense, and a regenerate heart. But this moral sense, you will discern righteousness and justice. That's where I'm drawing that, scent, that, that word sense from. Discern righteousness and justice and equity and every good course. That's what I mean by morality. This is what Solomon intends to teach by this book. Back in chapter 1, verse 2, to know wisdom and instruction, verse 3, to receive instruction and wise behavior, righteousness, justice, equity. And this is his purpose. This is what he wants to give you, is this kind of moral character. And when you come to fear God is when you have it. But he uses this word discern, and that's, that's a word of deciding between what's good and evil. God wanted to teach his people, we heard this morning, by the, the food and dietary laws to distinguish between one thing and another. He was teaching them discernment. Certainly he was teaching them good from evil by the law, but sometimes he was even teaching to choose between better and best. And sometimes that can be hard, can it? When we're presented with two choices that seem equally fine, it's harder to know, okay, what's actually best here? And he gives all of these moral terms, righteousness, justice, equity, every good course, This word discernment is used of Joseph when, when Pharaoh is looking for someone who has a really good moral compass to oversee all of the, all of the abundance that's going to come into Egypt. He's looking for someone with, that's full of discernment, and then this man interprets a dream for him and tells him this is coming, and he says, there's no one so full of discernment as you, Joseph, and he appoints him. And you see that that was a good appointment because Pharaoh ends up owning the whole land at the end of it. And Joseph is a, is a God-fearing man. Deuteronomy chapter 4. If you want to turn there with me. Deuteronomy chapter 4. God uses this with reference to his law. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 6. 
Deuteronomy 4, verse 6, So keep my laws and statutes and judgments and do them. For that is your wisdom and your, here's the word, understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all the statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. God is equating his law with their wisdom and their really their testimony before the nations that they are a wise and understanding people. It is, it is moral discernment and moral sense about what God says is true of the world and what how we ought to conduct ourselves. In 1 Chronicles chapter 28, David is speaking to his son Solomon, and he charges him near the end of his reign with this. As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you. Solomon really sees this borne out in his life when near the beginning of his reign, God comes to him and offers him anything he would ask. And Solomon asks for wisdom. He is humble and he knows his need of discernment to rule God's people. And he says this in 1 Kings 3, give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? Solomon. Don't you know the difference between right and wrong? Have you ever tried to adjudicate a fight between a three-year-old and a one-year-old? Sometimes distinguishing between good and evil can get complicated, right? And that's when they don't even know the difference between good and evil very well, right? How complicated can it get? It was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. God said to him, because you have asked this thing and have not asked for yourself long life, nor have asked riches or the life of your enemies, but you've asked for discernment to understand justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart so that there has been none like there's uh, been no one like you before you, nor shall one like you arise after you. And God gives him much more even than he asks. He needed discernment. He needed moral sense. He needed good judgment to make decisions in life. And this is what he is testifying to his son, that God will give when you fear him. But then he also says, I think this is how it comes to you. It's an interesting phrase, verse 10, for wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. If you search for wisdom, it, it will lead you to fear God, and you will, you will have wisdom, and it will change you on the inside. It will, in fact, change what you enjoy. Fear in God produces in you a desire to know truth about God and about his world and about his ways. You want to come to know yourself as God has made you. You want to have more knowledge of God. It's pleasant to you. Knowledge will be pleasant to your souls. Isn't it the unrighteous in Romans 1 who suppress? 
suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They don't want it. It's not pleasant to them. They don't want to learn about their condition. In fact, they may even try to silence those who tell them about it. You see that certainly in Scripture too. And this word discretion, wisdom will enter your heart, knowledge will be pleasant to your soul, discretion will guard you, understanding will watch over you. This is the idea of, of shrewdness. It gives you this extra sense of what's around you. And what is this but a new heart that he's describing, a heart of flesh? I want you to see this. If you would turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 36. God promises that he will do that in the new covenant. Ezekiel 36. And verse 26. What, what is a new heart like when God gives it to you at salvation? Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances." And interestingly enough, what's the effect of this? You will live in the land that I gave your forefathers, so you will be my people and I will be your God. This promise of living in the land is always connected to walking in righteousness. And God is saying, I'm going to put that inside of you when I give you a new heart that's inclined to obey me. Turn over, if you would, back towards Jeremiah 31. This is another passage describing in slightly different terms the same promise. Jeremiah 31, verse 31, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And look at what knowledge they have. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the, greatest, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. Wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. I believe this is a, an indication, maybe not in new covenant terms, but God will change you from the inside out when you fear him. What you love will change. You'll delight to think on things of God. You'll delight to think on things that are true. What did Paul say to the Philippians? Whatever is true, whatever is just, whatever is holy, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, think on these things. Why can he say that? Well, because he knows he's appealing to people who have new hearts and that this is what their heart really is like. And maybe they need reminded to do that because the world afflicts them and, and presents so many other things for them to think about. But that is what a new heart does. 
This is why it's such a concern when somebody who's professing to be a Christian resists walking in paths of righteousness and has such a, a, a propensity to abandon righteousness for sin. This is why there's such concern over that person. We're all weak. We all have sin. But when God gives you a new heart, it manifests itself in righteousness, the wisdom of righteousness, and a desire for righteousness. There are many people who have purposes that aren't straight down the line with God's righteousness. 1 Peter 1, or 1 Peter 4, chapter 1, this is why Peter writes about it. To believers, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. You wasted enough time in that before you were a Christian. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. You just don't enjoy it anymore. Knowledge has become precious to you when wisdom enters your heart, when you really fear the Lord. So test yourself by this. These are products of fearing God, but then it also brings several safeguards that are really a blessing to us. He says, then you will discern righteousness and justice for knowledge will enter your heart, or wisdom will enter, knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. What, what safeguards does all of this bring to you? This, this internal compass to guide you in the ways of God. We're not, we're not really even talking about the Holy Spirit, which as New Testament Christians, we also have. But this is, this is God changing your heart. What protections do you have? Well, to deliver you from the way of evil, from the man who speaks perverse things, from those who leave the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness who delight in doing evil and rejoice in the perversity of evil, whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. You see a little bit of a, a, a development here. They speak in a certain way. They make a choice to leave a certain path. They're walking in a particular other way. It's defined by darkness, not by light. They actually like this. They delight in it. They rejoice, even when it's not just them, it's other people. They laugh at it. They celebrate it. Their paths are, are crooked. These people are devious. This idea of perversity. The man who speaks perverse things. It's the idea of deviating from a, a standard. It's, it's crooked. So if God's standard is... You look at it and you can see it all the way down the line. You know exactly what it is, exactly what you're getting. Those who are perverse are coming and cutting across it, whether very openly by immorality or some gross open sin or even by some suggestive way of speaking. 
They're not straight down the line. They are perverse. They are crooked. The only time this word is used outside of the book of Proverbs is actually of Israel. In the time of Moses, right near the end of his life, Moses sings a song in Deuteronomy 32, and he describes that generation in the wilderness as crooked, as perverse. They were, they were at cross purposes with the ways of God and with the expectations of God. I think you really see the protection from people like that in the life of David. If you would turn with me to 2 Samuel, I was reading this week, 2 Samuel chapter 1. And it really occurred to me that what David experienced, the wisdom he had, right, as Saul and Jonathan were dying and David was being established in his kingship, he had a lot of wisdom. And the Lord really delivered him from people who are very much like this, speaking perverse things, not thinking about the ways of God. And David makes some decisions that initially you think, man, woo. Uh, is that the right thing? But then he he reasons, you hear his reasoning, and it's like, oh, wow, I would not have thought about that. It's, it's that David has wisdom that has entered his heart, and he's thought about the ways of God, and it delivers him from wicked men and from wicked decisions. Second Samuel 1, Saul dies, and David is anxiously waiting for news about, I'm just going to summarize some of these chapters, some of the parts of these chapters. He's anxiously waiting for news, and this man comes to him, and he's like, I have news. And David says, what happened? And he said, it just so happened that I came across Saul, and he was slowly dying out. He had fallen on his sword, but he hadn't completely died. And he said, take my life, lest these heathens do it. And so he struck Saul down, and he tells David about the rest of what happened. And he's an Amalekite. And what does David do? David commands that his men go and kill that man. And it's it's a little bit surprising that, oh, okay. He thought he was telling David something good. And he thought he was telling David, okay, go claim your throne. And David kills this man. And what's his reasoning? Well, you dared to raise your hand against God's anointed, is his reasoning. And then he chants and laments over Saul and his son. And he teaches the people of Judah this song. And then David's made king in chapter 2, and he's fighting some wars. But then Abner, Saul's general, crowns one of, other, one of Saul's other sons, Ishbosheth, as king over Israel. And there's two kings over the same people. This is a little bit of a problem, right? But David doesn't immediately go and go guns blazing, but there is a problem. Abner and Joab have a showdown. Do you remember anything about Joab, that son of Zeruiah? He and his two brothers, one of them is shortly killed by Abner. They were a trouble to David. And David, they were something for him to manage. But David doesn't go in all-out war at Ishbosheth. In verse in chapter 3, God is strengthening the house of David. Ishbosheth really makes a mistake. But then Abner comes and visits David, and David welcomes him. And he's willing to come to terms, and he's willing to pardon some of Abner's misdeeds in the kingdom. 
But then Joab, remember, he comes back. David, what are you doing? Why'd you let Abner go? You should have killed him. And David says, no, we're going to give him peace. What does Joab do? He goes out and he kills Abner. He murders him in cold blood in the gate to avenge his brother. This is not the will of David. And what does David do? He really takes every step right. He doesn't take a misstep here. Joab did something he shouldn't have done. But David mourns, and the people realize that it was not David's will to do this to Abner. David was a righteous man. Joab was the one who had made a mistake. And then in chapter 4, Ishbosheth, he's really, he's all but done. But these men go and kill Ishbosheth in his bed. And then they come and tell David and say, hey, look what we did. We're on your side. And David says, by your own mouth, you're telling me that you killed an innocent man. And he has them killed. And it's like, mm, okay, I thought they were on your side. And it's maybe a little surprising. But these are men eager to shed blood. They're not thinking about the ways of God. They're thinking that in some kind of zeal or some self-promotion or something. And David has this, has this principle that's operating in him. And it's righteousness. And all of these things that he really could have taken a step into a ditch, he, he navigates it really well. And then he becomes king overall Israel. He's escaping from crooked paths. And maybe you'd ask, what makes David so wise? How could he have done this? Well, if somebody's writing things like this, maybe this is an answer. Psalm 119, how blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. How blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart, they also do no unrighteousness. They walk in his ways. You have ordained your precepts that we should keep them diligently. How shall a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to, his, to your word. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. David has put a premium on the law of God. This is why he is wise, is because he desires the righteousness of God. And you see something very similar in Solomon's day. You remember, there's this attempted coup, right? As Solomon is about to be enthroned, and he has to deal with it. And then there are some of these people who were mocking David when uh, Absalom tried to stage his coup and Solomon has to deal with them. And he deals with them very shrewdly. God is giving these men wisdom to escape from crooked paths. But God also gives us an escape from moral snares. It's to deliver you, verse 16, from the strange woman from the adulteress who flatters with her lips. The, the idea of the, the strange woman, the foreigner, it's because it's so closely tied with the idolatry of the surrounding nations. And we'll see a more full portrait of that later in chapter seven. But notice some of her characteristics. She's an adulteress. She's unfaithful. She's a flatterer with her words. She makes you feel good by what she says to you. She leaves the companion of her youth. She's forsaken. She's a covenant breaker. And you see all her terrible effects. 
It's the naive person who's captured by her, who wanders near her house, the, the morally irresponsible person. Of course, a good illustration of the, the security of wisdom for this is Joseph, isn't it? Potiphar's wife. She wasn't thinking about her covenant with Potiphar. She liked what she saw and she wanted it. And she was willing to flatter him. And she was willing to pursue him over and over and over. And how is Joseph operating? Pharaoh has done all this good to me. He's put me over everything in his house except for you. How could I do this great evil and sin against God? This is before Moses. This is before the law of Moses. He had wisdom in his heart, didn't he? Knowledge was pleasant to him. Even as he's reasoning in terms of, this is what Pharaoh has done. That's just reality. He's, he's dealing in the category of truth. He's not fuzzy in his thinking. Knowledge is pleasant to Joseph. And it protects him. It really does, doesn't it? It takes discernment to see the end of a path that somebody's on. It takes discernment. It takes good judgment to even to understand the character of a person so that you can understand their path. But wisdom helps you. Do you heed God's word and how God defines reality? Or do you take your definition of reality from a lawyer from a TV show, from a podcast, God tells you how the world works. Do you listen to him? But then there are several rewards. Verse 20, if you have this wisdom, it'll deliver you from this path, from this path. So you will walk in the way of good men and keep to the paths of the righteous. And what's the, what's the end consequence of that? It's kind of the, the penultimate result, but then the ultimate result and the ultimate reward is the upright will live in the land and the blameless will remain in it. And it's very interesting that he ends with the consequence for those who don't follow on the path of righteousness. They never saw it coming. They wanted to deny that it was true, but here it comes like a thunderbolt at the end but the wicked will be cut off from the land and the treacherous will be uprooted from it. I see here temporal blessings of righteousness and eternal blessings of righteousness. Certainly there's a promise here. There's a reference to the promised land with all of its blessings and curses. If you obey me, you will stay in the land and you will have success and security. If you disobey me, you will not. I will oppose you and just read the history of Israel and that's exactly what happens when the people in the time of in the wilderness with Joshua and judges with the kings under the prophets. That's exactly what happens. It, it just think, for instance, of the cycle of the judges. When they go to idols, they suffer. When they repent, they're blessed. That's exactly what the law describes. And eventually it gets so bad. We've been considering Jeremiah up here the last six weeks. God has to send them away. They're, they're literally removed from the promised land because they wouldn't turn from their sin. That's the curse of the law. One of the curses of the law that they would be removed. 
But you see here that there's company on this path. You will walk in the way of good men. You will keep to the paths of righteous people. It really does matter who you listen to, doesn't it? It matters who you surround yourself with. It matters who your companions are. There's indication of this later in Proverbs. Don't be a companion of an angry man or you will become like him. This isn't saying insulate yourself from the world and don't talk to people who sin. That'd be kind of lonely, right? Uh, that's not what Solomon is saying. But who who is your yoke fellow? Who are you going through life with? Striking in Second Chronicles chapter 24 in a single chapter. If you would turn there with me, Second Chronicles chapter 24. How a single king, Joash... Starts off so well and ends so badly. Remember Joash? He became king when he was seven. He's one of the two child kings. Josiah was the other one. Joash was first. Joash was seven years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. Second Chronicles 24, verse 1. And his mother's name was Zabiah from Beersheba. Josiah did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. And he does all these good things to restore and reform worship. Look at verse 17. But after the death of Jehoiada, that priest, notice the officials of Judah came and bowed down to the king. And the king listened to them. They abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and served the ashram and the idols. So the wrath, so wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for this, their guilt. Yet he, that is God, sent prophets to them to bring them back to the Lord. Though they testified against them, they would not listen. Isn't that striking? Just in a short sequence of narrative, how fast that happens. In fact, Joash murders the son of Jehoiada. That's what happens in the next verse. That priest who had mentored him and fathered him spiritually is now dead. And Josiah kills his son because he's preaching repentance to him. So what happens? Look at verse 23. God sends an invading army. It happened at the turn of the year that the army of the Arameans came up against him. And they came to Judah and Jerusalem, destroyed all the officials of the people from among the people. You think that's on accident? Those officials who Joash listened to sent all their spoil to the king of Damascus. Indeed, the army of the Arameans came with a small number of men. Yet the Lord delivered a very great army into their hands because they had forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers. Thus, they executed judgment on Joash. When they had departed from Joash, for they left him very sick, his own servants conspired against him because of the blood of the son of Jehoiada the priest and murdered him on his bed. So he died and they buried him in the city of David, but they did not bury him in the tombs of the kings. How is that for the wicked being cut off from the land and the treacherous being uprooted from it? That's exactly what that is. He turned from the Lord. When I was working at Bob Jones University as a residence hall supervisor, I had some really good run-ins with guys when there was correction in their life and they would turn from what they were doing and they were restored to their to the Lord. But there were a few times where there were particularly heartbreaking cases of 
of young men who would not listen. And there was one boy in particular that I remember came as a freshman and he had become involved with a girl while he was in high school against his parents' wishes. And his parents found out about it after he came to school. And his parents were appealing to him about this relationship because it had started in, in, under ungodly pretenses, appealing for him to cut it off. And I was involved and my supervisor was involved appealing to this young man. And he was convinced that he was doing the right thing. And he came in September or August or whatever of that year. And by Thanksgiving, November, just a couple short months, he would not even go home to see his parents because he thought they were against him. He would not heed. But what blessings are there when there's a child who will heed his parents' appeals and their direction in righteousness? They're protected from all of that. What, what, what did that young man not foresee? Just about everything. What, what he's doing to his relationship with his parents. What he's telling God about God's sovereignty in his life. What kind of example he's setting for his own kids someday. He wasn't thinking about any of that. But a child who heeds and who listens is protected from so much heartache, isn't he? Even among Christians, don't they have the most groans who spend their lives longest in sin? We think that I just need to break out from these bonds and, and go do these things, and then maybe I'll come back eventually. No, there's only sorrow in sin. There are temporal blessings in life to righteousness. You will walk in the way of good men and keep to the paths of the righteous. That will shield you from many sorrows and from many heartaches. And the principle is that the upright will live in the land and the blameless will remain in it. And there, there's a definite sense of the, the promised land here, but I think there's an even greater sense of, or an, an additional sense of, the eternal blessings of righteousness. When you see the consequence for the wicked, the wicked will be cut off from the land and the treacherous will be uprooted from it. When God was making promises to Abraham, he said, your descendants are going to come back to this land after I believe the fourth generation. And he says this in Genesis 15, because the wickedness of the Amorite is not yet complete. And what does God mean? He means that when Joshua comes marching back, he's going to drive out all of those people in Canaan because the land was spewing them out. God was driving them out of the land because of their sin. This is what God says in Leviticus chapter 18. Keep these laws. Do not do any of these abominations that the nations around you have been doing. He says, Leviticus 18 verse 24. Don't defile yourselves by any of these things. For all these, the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled. For by them. For the land has become defiled. Therefore, I have brought its punishment upon it. So the land has spewed out its inhabitants. Don't do this. Everything that I'm going to use you to discipline these people for 
It will happen to you if you do the same thing. Don't do these things, verse 28, so that the land will not spew you out should you defile it, as it has spewed out the nation which has been before you. There are temporal blessings. There are eternal blessings. This, this language of cutting off really reminds us that this is an eternal matter too. The promised land was the, the promised land and it's promised to the people of Israel, but even the people that lived by faith who never saw the promised land, they had their sights set on something better, right? A lasting city, an eternal city, an eternal rest. The only way to have God's blessings is to have God's righteousness. If you want to be wise, it's by walking in the ways of God. So what is the safety of possessing wisdom? Well, there, there are certain things that fearing God produces in your life, this moral sense about things and a new heart that loves wisdom. It protects you from certain things. Wicked men, crooked paths, ensnaring sins. But then there are rewards. There are blessings in time of being spared from what you yourself would go do. It restrains you. And then it, it secures for you this eternal blessing. And this is really just God's grace, right? Because what does the Bible say? There is none righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. We don't do this on our own. It's as God is revealing himself to us and saying, come to me, seek me, you will find. And part of that search for God is a turn from sin. And that is true wisdom. May the Lord give us wisdom to walk with him and to have all the blessings of, of security, not problem from harm, because we still live in a sinful world. We're going to have problems and we're sinful enough that even if we have wisdom, we're probably going to step wrong, right? but may the Lord protect us by his wisdom as we pattern our lives after, really, this is Christ. Live according to the visible expression of God's righteousness. May the Lord help us. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you do lead in paths of righteousness. This is really what David was writing in the psalm. How blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Lord, help us to walk with you this week and to delight in your word. If we've become discouraged in fellowshipping with you in the word, I pray that you'd uh, renew our, our zeal to know you and to know your ways and to do your will because we love you and you've made us alive and you've given us a desire to do what is right rather than what is foolish and sinful and natural to us. Thank you that you've given us new life. I pray that every person here would know for sure that they do have life through Christ. And if not, that they would put their faith in him today. Lead us in righteous paths this week. We pray it in Christ's name.